I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Cornell West and Bakari Katwana. Dr. Cornell West is professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University and is the author of nearly two dozen books, including Race Matters and Black Prophetic Fire. Bakari Katwana is a journalist, activist, and political analyst who serves as senior media fellow at the Harvard Law School-based think tank, The Jamestown Project. In part one of our conversation, we left off talking about the importance of empathy and asked whether justice for all in our society is possible without it. I want to come back to this conversation about justice and empathy mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. the twinning of those is really powerful. Uh, you know, I think, Dr. West, you've said that maybe conservatives in our culture are guilty of not feeling empathy. So in the case of an Antoine Rose not seeing themselves in his story or in his family's suffering, but liberals are guilty of maybe seeing themselves in that but doing nothing to change the system that produces that. So not combining the empathy with justice. How do we convince people that we have to change the system without making them feel like they're going to lose everything that they have, because they'll fight it tooth and nail to the Mm. end of time. I think there's two basic uh, responses to it, in my uh, limited opinion. One is that you either appeal to the best of those who do have a disproportionate amount of power, because they have a conception of themselves, and they have some sensibility in terms of having either conscience or some moral uh, sentiment. And there is a rich history of, for example, white brothers and sisters fighting, sacrificing against white supremacy. Mm -hmm. The challenge is they got a lot of cousins who are are not. (laughs) But you got to keep track of those. But if that doesn't work, then all you have is just clash of power, which means rebellion, chaos, the inability to generate any order, and everybody's scared. Now, that's what you had in any of these moments of riots and rebellions in the history of Pittsburgh, Detroit, Los Angeles, New York. There's a history of the country in regard to the labor movement. That's what the women had to do with suffrage. You just had mm-hmm. to create chaos, mm-hmm. demonstrations, fill the jails, because you figure that there's very little more sentiment on the other side. Mm-hmm. So once you then appeal to their self-interest, because nobody can function, Right. In the context of chaos. Right. You see, at that point, even the ruling class got to say, we got a problem. Yeah. We can't function. We can't get to work. We can't generate our way of life. We got to respond. We got to make concessions. And that's always an element. But if that's the only element, that's another sign of the spiritual emptiness of a culture. Mm-hmm. If it's just power, if it's just interest, no principles, no moral integrity, no spiritual content, just power, 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 then in the end, we all just slide down a slippery slope to the next moment of chaos. Mm-hmm. Bakari, I'm thinking about you in yeah. the context of you know what you've done with Mothers of the Movement oh, and the... And the so you've seen this up close and personal in terms of police shootings and victims yeah. of that. And how do we get at that at that deeper level that Dr. West is talking about? Lonnie Guineer, the mm-hmm. law professor yeah. at Harvard, mm-hmm. she wrote a book called The Coal Miner's Canary. You know, basically the idea is that 
what's happening to black folks in America can happen to you, right? Right, right. <laughs> that the injustices that are visited on black people can happen to you. And we're, we're seeing that play out. We see it play out with things like these mass shootings. Right. In which you had one here in Pittsburgh. People are killed by a mass shooter. The community says, we've got to get these guns under control. Right. And the response is nothing. Right. Right. Exactly. And we, we see it again and again and again. These shootings are happening almost on a daily basis. Somewhere around the country, they're happening. Nine people have been killed in a second mass shooting in less than 24 hours. This time, it happened in Dayton, Ohio, at an entertainment district in that city. Our heart goes out to the victims' families. We pray for you. And this great crowd represents this great community and letting them know how much we deeply care about them. Do something! We're here tonight. You had the uh, the school shooting of the children. What, what was the... In Parkland and uh, in Florida? No, no. no, no, no. before that. Oh, Sandy Hook. Th- that's right. The elementary... Oh, in Connecticut. Yeah, in the, Connecticut, chi- the yeah. children. Now, if we live in a country in which that can happen and the response is nothing, is nothing right. like we have really descended damn near into chaos. Right. Because that is the height of democracy not working, people saying this is not what they want, and the country doing something totally the opposite, right? right? right. That's what black folk feel. When you have people killed and you say we need to change certain things to make this work, and the response is nothing, nothing. we live that. So I feel like people should be able to identify with that reality on that one issue alone, because that's what it is. It's a loss of life. And we could prevent it. As a nation, we could prevent it. But nothing is being done about it. That, and then to me, when we can deal with that, we can see a way to deal with the, uh, the other issues. Yeah, I, I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Uh, we've you know, tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, We've elected an African-American president. I I think no one currently alive was responsible for that. I'm thinking about Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's response to reparations. And there is this moral distancing. It's not just him. And, And to Dr. West's point, this happens on both sides of the political equation. But right now we're in a moment where it seems to be predominantly coming from the right. And, you know, people by nature distance themselves from tragedy. They want to believe it's not going to happen in their school, that it's not going to happen to their family. The crux of this, I think, is how do we actually get people to see that we are all in this, what Dr. King called the web of mutuality and the same human family and that an injustice on one is an injustice on all. I mean, these are common sayings from the best of human wisdom, Mm -hmm. and yet our policy doesn't reflect that. I'm curious how you react to what you're seeing play out right now in terms of No, I mean, let's just take the case of Brother Mitch now. Now, He's an (laughs) Irish brother who comes from a people who have been colonized, dominated, traumatized for 800 years by British ruling class. 
And he comes to Jim Crow, Alabama. That's where he's born. He grew up in Jim Crow, Georgia, and then moved to Jim Crow, Connecticut. So you got terrorism right there on the other side of town. He's coming from a people who've been terrorized. Mm -hmm. But he gets here, and his whiteness gives him some distance from certain kind of terrorism against black people. And he begins his career in the center. He's a moderate and drifts to the right. That's called opportunism, cowardice, obsession with power, status, wealth. Now, you can have great money and still be sensitive. You can have big power and still be sensitive, but you got to work hard at it. Mm. So, Brother Mitch is an example of the country becoming more callous, becoming more indifferent to vulnerable people, even though he comes from a vulnerable people. And at this point now, you know, he's uncritical supporter of Donald Trump, who he himself said was in some ways gangster-like. And of course, we've seen that with Cruz and a host of others. They've all called him very ugly names, and now they are marching to his tune. To his tune. Well, what is that? That's opportunism. Now, that's inside of all of us. Mm. We all have the capacity to downplay our principles and just become opportunistic, callous, indifferent, because we're only concerned about ourselves and our own interests. And so the question becomes, what counterexamples do we have? like the words that you talked about of a king or golden rule or whatever. How do you produce examples and witnesses of people who are countervailing forces against the opportunism, the greed, the obsession with power, Mm -hmm. the addiction to narrow conceptions of success? And every generation has to do that. And the younger generation is doing it. The younger generation has some wonderful, wonderful freedom fighters and truth lovers. They really do. And I wish they were on TV more often Mm -hmm. than they actually are. Bakari? Oh, my goodness. I'm at a loss for words at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But um, let let me frame it around a couple of more specific examples that maybe help us get at at this at a deeper level. I'm thinking, Dr. West, your mother was a beloved school teacher. Oh, still is. Still is. Still is. Okay. 87 years young. Oh, my God. Oh, (laughs) yes, absolutely. May she continue. That's fabulous. And you've been involved in the stop mass incarceration movement you know we've been doing a lot of work on the school to prison pipeline mm, at this foundation wonderful. and you look at the statistics black students make up 15% of the student body but 31% of those arrested on school grounds they're mm. disciplined at significantly higher rates we did a study here in Pittsburgh that demonstrated that in some cases black students are disciplined at seven times the rate of white students and of course that brings them into contact with the criminal justice system earlier. You know, this notion of a pipeline is real, and it's played out by the facts on the ground. But then you have the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, who's rescinded guidance created by the Obama administration to ensure that students of color aren't disciplined at those higher rates and that they're treated equitably and fairly. How do we make progress on these issues when the people who hold the reins of power fundamentally don't believe there is a problem or, worse, may cynically want to abuse it? I mean, one is you just have to have leaders. Leadership matters. You have to have leaders to make it a priority to say everybody agrees in Washington that Uh, military issues are issues of national security. That's why that particular structure of America is socialistic. You know, we don't outsource that. We don't commodify and marketize that. 
That's governmental control because that's crucial. Right. Right. Now, what if our precious children of all colors, but especially the poor and working children, were treated exactly the same way as the military industrial complex? Mm. Major priority. Mm. National security. If they don't have quality education, quality life, including protection, then the country is going to go under. Just like we don't have the bombs in place, we're going to go under. But that's Martin King, right? Right. A revolution in priorities. And if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. Now, what would it take to have that kind of revolution priorities? Mm-hmm. Major moral and spiritual and political awakening among the populace. Examples of leaders who are willing to cut against the status quo and the entrenched interests that make it difficult for that change in priority of values to be set in place. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's just a fundamental question of how deeply do we really love our kids anyway? Yeah, right. What about their teachers? We talk about we love teachers. Well, not really. How come we pay them so little as opposed mm-hmm. to the private sector, financial sector where they get paid? Isn't that the measure right. of dominant value in America? So it's clear that we really don't care concretely as much as we say we do. Right. So we end up being hypocritical. So we have to point that out, and we have to say, but look at those teachers who are still fighting. Right. Look at those kids who are still fighting. Look at those few politicians and leaders who are still fighting. Look at those foundations that are trying to cut against the grain and still fighting. Keep focus on them as well. If we're placing some hope in the hands of the young people who are coming up today, you know, I'm thinking about a 2018 study that found that black students who mentioned their activism on their college applications are more likely to be weeded out Hmm. than (laughs) white students who mentioned their activism. Uh, What do you say to activists about the repercussions they may face and why it's worth facing them anyway. It depends on what type of person you you want to be, mm-hmm. you know. To fight for justice can never be out of style. At some point, this inequality and this kind of worship of money and wealth it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's not sustainable for these upper tier institutions to cost 60, 70 $75,000 a year we're getting to in some cases. People don't make that. <laughs> the bulk of Americans don't make that. Right. So who is the education for? It's not sustainable to burden poor people with more and more and more and more debt. And at some point, your power and your money is not, not going to save you. We've seen it right. with civilization after civilization. Right. So it fascinates me You know, what's going on in the thoughts of someone who thinks that this is sustainable? You know, young people will realize that our future is not an individualism. Mm -hmm. Our future is in the collective. And I think one of the great things about the millennial generation activists who came of age with Ferguson and Baltimore and Cleveland is that 
they were in the height of the recession and they knew they had nothing to lose. Right. That pushed people to a place where we saw something beautiful about what could happen in terms of transformation. When young people began to put out those calls and you had people into the thousands turning out to those protests, that was a magnificent moment in this country. We saw something special about the possibility of what can happen and what will happen when people's backs are pushed to the wall. And it's sad that that's what it takes, that it takes that crisis and the sense of having nothing to lose. The longer I do this work and the older I live, (laughs) the more it becomes important to me to understand the spiritual grounding for it and why we do what we do and why we have to fundamentally believe, for example, Bakari, what you just said, that the future is in our connectedness, not in our separation and our individualism. And Dr. West, you've referred to yourself as a revolutionary Christian. And I'm curious for both of you how you think about spirituality in the context of activism and changing the world away from this adulation of wealth and the worshiping of materialism. No, no. To be a revolutionary Christian is to be in the world but not of the world. Mm to try to hold off in viewing life as a gold rush where you end up worshiping the golden calf. So you have to have a very different conception of what it means to be great. If Martin and Malcolm and Fannie Lou Hamer and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and Edward Zaid, if you understand them as great, they're not the richest financially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're not the most powerful. Mm-hmm. There was something in their choices in life that led them to be willing to tell certain truths, bear certain burdens, mm. and actually deal with certain risk, you see. And that's in part what, uh, what Shelley had in mind when Shelley says, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. I'll be right <laughs> back to just see it. Right, right. Those <laughs> who have the courage to authorize an alternative reality by means of their empathy and imagination in a nightmarish world. And poets are not just versifiers. Right. They're people whose lives enact imagination, enact empathy, so that their witness signifies a better world. Mm-hmm. Even though it, they may be crucified, they may be crushed, they may be lied on, they may undergo character assassination, may undergo literal assassination. You cannot deny that their witness prefigures a better world. You see, right. that's what Jesus was. A particular Jew coming out of Judaism whose very life enacted a love that was seemingly crushed by the Roman Empire, and yet the driplets of blood at that cross were driplets of love tied to a justice for everybody, beginning with the least of these, beginning with the most vulnerable. So what were the Christians first defined as? Those who define love as the way. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was their identity, which meant they were fools, which is true. They were holy right. fools. Yeah, by the standards of the day, they were By the standards fools. of any day. Right. By <laughs> any day. Absolutely. We can go on and on yeah. and on, you see. Yeah. And so, and I don't believe Christians well, this, have a monopoly on this. Is, and this is so much part of the Christian narrative that has gotten lost oh, yeah. in this country. That's, I mean, that's why but, you'll never see in a church a picture of Jesus in the temple running the money changers out. Mm-hmm. Right. Never. Right. right. Because that Jesus is too threatening. 
very inconvenient Jesus. You want a nice little calm, <laughs> serene Jesus. And usually in a white supremacist society, that Jesus looked like Michelangelo's uncle. Right. <laughs> rather than the Jewish brother that he was, a right. swarthy right. complexion in right. the Middle East, you see. Yeah. Uh, so in that way, you say, oh, our churches, we appreciate your effort, churches, but we know that you're founded on the body of Peter. Well, what did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times. Hmm. That's the basis of the church, so you don't have high expectations. <laughs> That's brilliant. Bakari, I don't know how you, how you follow that, but I'm going to ask you to. Uh-huh. Life is struggle. You, you have your ups and you have your downs. And when you have your downs, what carries you through? Life is an, an ongoing understanding that death is coming. Yeah. When you grapple with that, you're grappling with a certain degree of spirituality. For young people, particularly who are activists, I think one of the most important things that they understand is that they're fighting not just for themselves, they're fighting for the future of humanity. They're fighting for their children, they're fighting for their children's children, and nobody has the power over that. Doesn't matter how much money you got. We need to have a vision that allows for us to speak to generations that are coming after us, a vision for what can be, even if we can't create it in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And one of the great joys of the work that I get to do is getting to meet folks like you who are doing amazing work to change the world. And I'm just... On a personal level, I'm really grateful because this hour has been incredibly uplifting it's, for me. It's been a joy to and, be in dialogue with and, you, brother. The name of this program is We Can Be, mm-hmm. and it's an incomplete sentence. So I'm going to end by asking you to complete the sentence. Mm-hmm. We can be what? More courageous, more critical, more compassionate, and more sacrificial. Mm-hmm. So easy. We can be free. <laughs> awesome. 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 Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like yeah. that. <laughs> Sacrificial and free are two I've never heard before, so th- thank you. <laughs> thank you. Will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. We've touched on so many ideas in this interview that it's difficult to pick any favorites. But some key takeaways for me would have to include the idea that Bakari Katwana put on the table, that fighting for justice will never go out of style. His words are a reminder, as this entire interview is, that the times we're operating in may feel singular, but the fight for justice is timeless as long as there is oppression in the world. And yet it's also important to remember the times we are operating in, which Dr. West so aptly describes as a moment that can be characterized by the idea of survival of the slickest, where the greatest commandment is thou shalt not get caught, an atmosphere where greed and hatred seem to run amok. As we work to counter that, Another idea that it's worth holding on to is the role of artists in helping us see the path forward. As Dr. West said, artists have always said that you cannot live by bread alone. To be great is to love deeper, sacrifice more, tell the truth at a risk. That's the history of the species at its best. Those words should speak to all of us, not just artists, about how we can rise in our own lives and in our own communities to counter the moment that we find ourselves in. 
And finally, I love that Dr. West quotes Shelley when he says that poets are the unacknowledged policy legislators of the world and talks about how they can prefigure a better world. We need those visions of hope for a more just world now as much as at any time in our nation's history, at any time, in fact, in our world's history. We need to, as Dr. West said, create the good chaos of activism, of standing up for equality, and of demanding justice, not just for ourselves, but for everyone with whom we share this community, this country, and this planet. It is through this good chaos that we will truly experience the communal joy that this world has to offer.